0: the Jewish views on Balfour 100. It's official, the Balfour Declaration is 100 years old, but just what is its legacy? Yentl, the play, director Adam Lenson on his forthcoming production at JW3. And as the 36 million pound redevelopment of Hammerson House begins, we find out how the community stands to benefit.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has said it's disappointing that Jeremy Corbyn won't attend a dinner marking the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, when the British government endorsed the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Mr. Johnson claimed that the Labour leader's absence appeared to show him siding with one party and not the other. At the same time, the Foreign Secretary rejected Labour's calls for the UK to use the centenary to officially recognise the state of Palestine, saying that the Palestinian Authority needed to sit down and negotiate with the Israelis. One of the eight victims of the New York terror attack has been named by Argentina's foreign ministry as Ariel Elige, a Jewish businessman. He died alongside four other Argentinian men, all of whom were cycling when they were mown down by a truck driven by the Uzbek terrorist Safulo Saipov. The Board of Deputies sent a message of sympathy to the people of New York. The trial of a man accused of stabbing his mother and sister to death in their own home in August this year has been delayed. Joshua Cohen, who's 27, is charged with killing 66-year-old Louise Cohen and Hannah Cohen, who was 33, in Golders Green. Cohen appeared at the Old Bailey by video link when Judge Richard Marks set a fresh plea hearing for early next year, and remanded the defendant into custody. His trial had been set originally for February the 5th. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, has said that anti-Semitism is still an urgent issue, as he highlighted links to Lutheranism when he appeared on Radio 4's Today programme. He said people think that Jews as a body are guilty, dangerous and polluting. He was marking 500 years since Martin Luther first posted his criticisms of the Catholic Church in Germany, In later years, Luther expressed antagonism towards Jews and wrote that synagogues and Jewish homes should be destroyed. Rowan Williams spoke of anti-Semitism as a real, urgent, present issue that's not just another prejudice. And finally, a former soldier who survived a prisoner of war camp at Auschwitz is selling poppies for the Royal British Legion at the age of 100. Ron Jones volunteers for up to six hours a day at his local supermarket in Newport, South Wales, He believes this is the 30th year he's sold poppies, and admits he's become a bit of a celebrity locally, and well-deserved. Here's Andrew with the sport.
2: Thank you very much, Viv. Israel's judo fighters won five medals at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix event, though their presence in the Gulf state was marred with controversy. Unable to officially represent Israel, the Hatikva was banned from being played when Tal Flickr received his gold medal, while several athletes refused to shake the hands of their Israeli opponents. Closer to home, Boca Juniors has become the latest club to fold from Jewish football, bringing to an end their seven-year existence. Citing a lack of playing personnel for their demise, the club's Sefton Monk said, To say it has been a struggle this season would be an understatement. And finally, Elisha Levy has been dropped as manager of the Israeli national football team following a string of poor results in their 2018 World Cup qualifying campaign. He said, I have no remorse that I took this honourable and prestigious job. I think it was tough to get better results in this hard group, but I was judged on that. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at
0: jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew thank you very much indeed Hello there and welcome to this episode of the Jewish Views I'm Phil Dave let's start off as we always do With a look through your copy of the Jewish News for this week Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer And foreign editor Stephen Arezchuk Welcome to you both And now Richard there pretty much is only one theme throughout the paper this week isn't there Could I by any chance be talking about the 100 years since the Balfour Declaration I think so
3: A landmark anniversary, as you rightly say, Phil, that will not have escaped the scrutiny of a single one of our readers or listeners. Yes, 100 years since the signing of the declaration that uh, 31 years later brought forth the the state of Israel in 1948. Now, we've done many things, I think in total about 40 pages in this week's paper, uh, one way or another dedicated to it. We'll talk at greater detail about the actual Balfour Declaration celebrations taking place here in the UK, of which there are. Are many, including Benjamin Netanyahu, here at the behest of the Prime Minister in London to mark the occasion. But the most special thing for me personally is a souvenir magazine that we have published this week called The Aliyah List to celebrate the indomitable link and spirit between Anglo Jewry and. the state of israel this is a list of 100 people born in britain who made Aliyah and have helped to shape the modern state of israel we're calling it 100 for 100 100 people for that 100th anniversary
0: so tell us a bit more about the people who made it onto the list and how they qualified for getting on said list if you were born
3: with a British passport, you qualified if you then made Aliyah. So we had hundreds, we had a 22 strong panel of experts, many of whom would have qualified in that list themselves. So esteemed and established were they. We have run across 70 people who are currently alive and a posthumous list of 30. That's how we got to our hundreds. So we've had 30 people who are no longer with us, but their legacy lives on and 70 who are currently living amongst us who are doing inspiring things in all sorts of different fields from academia and medical and media and social work and governance and a really interesting array of next generation under 30s yeah i won't spoil the surprise for anyone who hasn't seen the paper yet as to who made our number one in our 70 list but it's what a, a tease you are Richard. it's a surprise <laughs> name
0: oh it good is, yeah. okay well there you go so if you want the to satisfy your level of intrigue, then you will have to have a look at this week's paper. But of course, Stephen, it's not just about the Ali Alis. There's an awful lot to do with Balfour in this week's paper. So what's been
4: your involvement? How have you got involved in the, the theme of Balfour? To be honest, I've been going back 100 years and looking at who... Well, you're looking good for it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking at who the players were at the time, who Balfour was who Lord Rothschild was, who these uh, early Zionists were that pushed for the declaration. And it's been fascinating. I didn't know much about this history at all. And it was quite a remarkable feat that Heim Weizmann and his colleagues managed. And we described it as being rather like a lowly third division team winning the FA Cup. And so with that uh, in mind, we came up with a Balfour 11 or a Zionist united and lots of fun ideas of showing this much discussed topic in new lights. You know, the thing that sort of strikes me, though, as far as the
0: Balfour declaration is concerned, is that because it happened as long as 100 years ago, there's almost this danger of people in this generation not recognizing the significance of it and just how crucial it was. So with that in mind... How much do you think that all of this is going to help to revive it into the forefront of people's minds.
3: I think what's helpful in terms of that centenary is that, as Stephen said, we can go back 100 years. If you look at the current situation in the Middle East between the Palestinians and and Israel and the wider Arab world, it's a battle that seems to go round and round cyclical. Year after year, it never changes. The foundations of this, which let's face it, whether you're a passionate Zionist like me or not, it was a colonial carve up in 1970 and it was the the downfall of the Ottoman Empire and and Britain stepping in and making these high-level decisions about vast swathes of land that for centuries before it were very, very separate and very, very disparate. So this is the echo that we're hearing now 100 years later. And if it's a chance for people on on both sides, Zionists and not, to to look back, read the history books and understand legitimate concerns on both sides, I think
0: this is a, a fantastic opportunity. Well, hopefully it will be seen as such. And this is, of course, is the problem you mentioned there about people being able to see from both sides. We shouldn't forget that although as a community, yes, by and large, we celebrate Balfour Declaration and also subsequently the state of Israel being born. There are people who even to this day, we're more than aware to this day, do not celebrate it. And actually, on the contrary, almost get really angry at the thought of the Balfour Declaration because of the subsequent political problems and it of course we need to, we do need to consider it.
4: It's a really important point the the idea of Jewish homeland is such a central element to this and something that Jews for 2,000 years have been waiting for but within the declaration itself such a short 67 word declaration there was the safeguards put in place and British diplomats this week and last have been very careful to say, what a fantastic thing. However, there was a second element to it, the protection of civil and religious rights of the pre-existing Arab community. And that element is still something that we need to look towards to do better on. Boris Johnson, the foreign secretary this week, made allusions to that. And I think that's where a lot of British Jews will be coming from. They'll be saying this is a fantastic thing. However, we're not there yet.
3: Mm. This debate was discussed on on Thursday. We had a, our annual third annual Bicom Jewish News Israel conference in in Parliament, in which the Balfour Declaration was the main subject, and these issues of of legacy, of partnership, of when will the partnership of, of, of the Palestinians and, and the israelis actually become that rather than adversaries whether the next generation is is better place than the current generation to do so these subjects were spoken about with people who are actually on the ground dealing with these subjects every day
0: See, the other problem, of course, as well, though, is that we say that it's it's important to try and resolve these issues. But the question is how? Because if you look at, say, calls from the Labour Party, that they have said that for the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, it's time to actually recognise a state of Palestine as well, which have been rejected subsequently by the government or certainly by Boris Johnson anyway. It does make you wonder how we can resolve if there's going to be such vast differences of opinion of how to resolve such issues.
3: Well, the problem that was discussed at the conference uh, ad nauseum and has been discussed, I think, here in in this studio, is that I think on the Palestinian side and to a great extent on the Israeli side, they see it as a zero-sum game. They see it as it's either we win or you lose. And it's neither betwixt or or between. So mutual compromise, a measure of respect and understanding, is the only space that this conversation can ever take place in. And you you can't communicate with another side if you're always going to be adversarial. So if we look another 100 years into the future, onto the 200th anniversary, those of us sitting around this table probably aren't full of great hope or expectation, but we can always dream. And I think that was probably the word that the the people who authored the Balfour Declaration were thinking at the time. It's a
4: dream. Interestingly, one of the things that I learned from going back and looking at the situation in 1917 was that... Whereas today most of the British Jewish community are Zionists, and, and identifiable Zionists, back then it wasn't so popular. It wasn't so mainstream. In fact, it was it was pushing to be the orthodoxy. Chaim Weizmann and uh, his his band of brothers, as it were, were. Not seen as anything like the establishment. They were trying to get into the establishment. And lots of establishment Jews, such as the cabinet minister at the time, Montague, were against the idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. They were of the mind that we're happy here in Britain. We don't want there to be a Jewish home somewhere else because if there is, we may not be welcome here. And so the idea took some pushing principally in the Jewish community itself.
3: At at that time, we're talking, you know, the 1910s pre First World War and the start of the conflict. We're only, what, 20, 30 years past the vast influx of Ashkenazim coming in from Eastern Europe. So there are only really second, third generation people here trying to find their way in Britain. And then all of a sudden, this idea of a, as Stephen wrote this week, you know, this dust bowl in the Middle East is mentioned as a possible homeland for the Jews. I'm I'm sure there was a lot of scepticism. And worry about what that meant for British Jews at the time.
0: All right. Well, it is absolutely fascinating stuff. And the whole history of Balfour Declaration is just... As you said before, Stephen, it's just so much that's to be learned about it and the significance of it. And we are absolutely going to carry on trying to learn about that significance throughout this programme. That's all we've got time for, for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, just in case you hadn't gathered from what you've been hearing so far, the Balfour Declaration is officially 100 years old. It was on the 2nd of November 1917 that the document paved the way for the creation of the State of Israel and was produced by the then Foreign Secretary Arthur James Balfour. But just what is its lasting legacy? You heard Richard literally just now mention about the annual Israel conference that took place on the 2nd of November. Well, I went along to speak to simon johnson the chief executive of the jewish leadership council just ahead of said conference about the work that he and the other members of the balfour 100 committee have been doing to commemorate this and i started by asking simon to remind us about the history of the declaration
5: The Balfour Declaration was a letter written by the Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour in 1917 on behalf of the British government to Lord Rothschild and what it represented, it was a 67-word letter, but it represented a statement of support and sympathy for Jewish Zionist aspirations for the establishment of a Jewish home in Palestine. Now the importance of it was, it was the first statement of support by any government anywhere in the world of support for the establishment of a Jewish home. And it effectively was the first step that led eventually to the creation of the State of Israel. It was a really visionary piece of statesmanship on behalf of the British government. In the middle of the First World War, they chose to look to the future and recognize the longing of the Jewish people for the reestablishment of their home.
0: And just to clarify, though, that wasn't necessarily the the birth of Israel. That was actually 30 years beforehand, wasn't it?
5: That's right. It was effectively the first step along the road to the creation of Israel. The Balfour Declaration was just a letter. It had no legal effect. It defined no territory. It was written in very broad and aspirational language. But within two to three years, it had become part of legal international treaties. And so the British mandate for Palestine was told to give direct effect in 1922 to the Balfour Declaration. So it became the legal basis around which people talked about the potential for a Jewish state. And ultimately in 1947, when the United Nations created their partition plan, creating a Jewish and an Arab state in Palestine, that gave actual territorial effect to the Balfour Declaration.
0: But if you mention it's just a letter, it does kind of beg the question, why are we making a fuss of the letter rather than Israel itself's 70th birthday? It seems almost would one describe it as perhaps over the top,
5: the way all these celebrations are happening? No, not at all. I mean, 2017 is a year of anniversaries. We have the hundredth anniversary of the Balfour Declaration and on the 29th of November we'll have the 70th anniversary of that vote by the United Nations to partition Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state, which led to the declaration of the State of Israel. And then next year in May we'll have the 70th anniversary of of the State of Israel itself. I think this is a real opportunity for our community to show their pride in Israel, their pride that it was this time, our government that took the first step to recognise the longing of the Jewish people and their, their rights to self-determination. The, the fact that it was the United Nations and international bodies that helped to give legal impact to the establishment of a state. And to celebrate that now, hundred years later, the British government is still one of the main supporters of Israel, a major trading partner, a major friend of the, of the country and a great nurturer of British Jewish community interests.
0: Well, we are but a few hundred yards away from the home of the British government and that's because it's one of the places that you're going to be visiting today, the 2nd of November. Tell us a bit about the Israel conference that's about to take place there and what's your involvement with that?
5: Well, this is a Jewish News and BICOM conference looking at the Middle East 100 years on from the Balfour Declaration, so I've got the privilege to introduce a panel that's specifically going to discuss the Balfour Declaration and put it in its historical and political context. But this event taking place at Portcullis House within the Palace of Westminster will also have presentations from the Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office, Simon MacDonald, by uh, the Secretary of State for International Development, Priti Patel, by the Shadow Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Emily Thornbury, by ministers from the Israeli government. It's a major policy initiative and, and, and very fitting that on this day, 100 years since the issuing of the Balfour Declaration, the political establishment should be coming together to discuss discuss the opportunities for peace a hundred years on.
0: And this is just one of a number of events, isn't it? Because I know that the Balfour 100 Committee have obviously played their part in making sure that this occasion is marked in an appropriate fashion. Tell us a bit about the committee. How was that formed and what's your involvement?
5: Well, a, a, a couple of years ago, the JLC, of which I'm the chief executive, made the decision that it would be a good idea to commemorate the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. We thought it would be a great opportunity to give our community the opportunity to learn about a key moment in Zionist history and to come together with a that helped them to show their pride. So we helped to create the Balfour 100 Steering Committee, made up of 23 different organisations and chaired by Lord Kestenbaum on behalf of Lord Rothschild, who's been very involved in, uh, in this. And the Steering Committee has overseen over 100 events. So there was an event in Manchester on Tuesday attended by 400 people that, that launched the formal celebrations. Wednesday, November the 1st, Simon Sharma gave the Balfour Centenary Lecture at the Royal Society to 300 people that was streamed to venues in Belfast, Bournemouth, Brighton, Leeds and Glasgow and on the internet. Tonight there's a political and diplomatic event that will be attended by both Prime Ministers hosted by Lord Rothschild and over this coming Shabbat there will be something in most synagogues around the country. On Saturday night there's a special commemorative service at the Beavis Marks Synagogue in central London. So the steering committee has really delivered on the commitment to make sure that our community has every opportunity to mark this really significant moment in modern Jewish history.
0: I'm slightly loath to put a negative spin on any of this because obviously this is an auspicious moment and we mustn't overlook that and we must celebrate it obviously. However there are of course still major major rifts and major discrepancy, shall we say, within the Middle East, especially since the creation of the State of Israel. And unfortunately, we do need to acknowledge that some people are obviously not celebrating the Balfour Declaration in the way that most of the Jewish community hopefully is. How do you think that moving forward, we need to use this moment in time to perhaps try and move on to, say, the next phase of what will hopefully become peace in the Middle East?
5: Well that's exactly what we should be doing 100 years on. I mean the people who framed the Balfour declaration, the foreign secretary and the war cabinet believed that the Zionist aspirations for a Jewish home could sit alongside Arab nationalism and and for the Arabs and the Jews to to share the land in in, in peace. Now 100 years later that ambition has not yet fully been realized. So I think it's absolutely right now that we we recognize the steps that were taken 100 years ago but look to the future and that we all encourage political leaders leaders and those of us in community positions who are able to influence that, to take steps to make sure that before too long that there is a long-term just and lasting peace between the State of Israel and the Palestinian people based on two states for two peoples with everybody living in peace and harmony. It was a vision that Arthur Balfour himself, the Foreign Secretary, shared that many of the leaders at the time believed that the Balfour Declaration would lead to. And I think it now is incumbent upon political leaders all around the world to make sure that a just and lasting peace is the proper legacy of this Balfour centenary.
0: Now there is going to be one question that we're asking pretty much throughout this program this particular edition of the Jewish Views and it will be discussed in particular on our Jewish Schmooze a little later on, but we are asking what does to us as Jews the state of Israel mean to us? How would you answer it if I was to ask you personally, never mind in your official capacity what does the state of Israel mean to you?
5: Well I think it's somewhere deep within my heart and my soul and I'll tell you why, I'll give you one story from my prior career. When I used to work in football at the Football Association, I Uh, had the job of looking after the VIPs when visiting teams came to Wembley. And when England played Israel in 2007, I walked out onto the pitch just behind the VIPs and I stood on the touchline. And when they played the national anthems, I sang both national anthems. And there were tears in my eyes when I sang the Hatikva at Wembley Stadium, because in the end, Israel is is at the heart of our Jewish culture and our heritage. And and for me, that demonstrated that for me, it's somewhere very deep inside that we all are very, very very proud that we do have a Jewish home.
0: Just finally, I know that no one can predict the future any more than the next person. However, give us a glimpse into the future. I'm guessing the work doesn't stop here. It might be the centenary today, but what's next?
5: Well, what's next is the, the 70th anniversary of the UN partition plan. That was a really interesting moment because that was when the international community effectively created a two-state solution. I think that's worthy of debate. And then comes Israel 70 next year in, in May. But beyond that, there's the day-to-day work of the Jewish community and the JLC, focusing at the moment on long-term solutions to the elderly care provision in our community, to youth mental health, to making sure that our community is financially sustainable to meet the challenges of the next 10 years. As soon as this is out of the way it's back on with the day job
0: simon johnson the chief executive of the jewish leadership council talking to me there about the work of the balfour 100 committee and also the importance and the relevance of the balfour declaration and i think it's appropriate at this stage seeing as we're talking about it so much that we should remind ourselves of those 67 words of the balfour declaration they read as follows dear lord rothschild I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's Government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. And of course it is signed by Arthur Balfour. Extraordinary wording, and as Simon Johnson said there, way ahead of its time. And frankly, something that most Jews have to be really grateful for that ultimately led to the creation of the state of Israel. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive, Tony and I will be joined by trustee of Max's Foundation, Louise Roby. We'll be discussing what you've been hearing about throughout this program so far the Balfour Declaration's centenary. And in particular, we'll be asking the question, what does the state of Israel mean to us? Plus, Community Editor Diana Toman will be speaking to Susan Cohen, the Director of Fundraising and External Relations at Nightingale Hammerson, based on their newly embarked £34 million renovation of Hammerson House in the Bishop's Avenue. We'll be finding out a bit about that later on. But first, I think when one hears the word Yentel, what do you think of? Well, you might be forgiven for thinking of the truly great Barbara Streisand and maybe even start singing to yourself, Papa, can you hear me? But did you know that Yentl was not originally meant to be a musical? In fact, it was originally written as a play. Well, JW3 are exploring this with their new production of Yentl, The Play, which will take place on the 26th of November. Well, just ahead of that, we have sent our arts editor, Kate Fulton, along to speak to Adam Lenson, the director of the play. And Kate caught up with Adam in a coffee shop in the middle of northwest London. So we do apologise in advance for the background noise that you're about to hear. But I'm sure you can understand with a play in the proceedings, he's a rather busy chap and Kate had to grab the moment that she could. And with that in mind, Kate started by asking Adam to tell us a bit more about himself. I am a theatre director,
6: that's my day job, and I'm also the director of The Spielers, which is JW3's amateur theatre group.
7: The Spielers, wow, so are they a group of singers, or
8: who are they?
6: The Spielers are a group of amateur actors. So it's a community theatre group made up of a kind of ever-changing, ever-growing group of interested Jewish, predominantly actors who are interested on getting together on a Sunday night to make a piece of theatre. We have done plays, we have done musicals and at the moment we're doing the play of Yentl.
7: Can anyone join? Or is this something that you have to be part of a special group?
6: No, anyone can join. We put emails out on the JW3 mailing list, we had a Facebook mail out, we had a kind of casting blurb which we put out. We do auditions in order to decide who is going to play which part so there is a kind of scale of quality there but There are many parts to play in the productions that we pick, and we're very interested. If you want to be part of the Spielers, we'll probably find some part for you.
7: Okay, but you're putting on Yentl. And Yentl was a short story by Isaac Bashevisinger, and he made it into a play. What everybody knows Yentl is Barbara Streisand playing the part of a young girl who wanted to learn Talmud, and the only way she could do that was to become a boy if you like and live her life as a boy even though she was identified as a woman, Wants to live as a woman. Is that relevant? Is that why you chose it?
6: We chose it because we were looking for a play which is for a big enough company that has an interesting mix of roles for different ages, for different genders and we were looking for something that was Jewish themed but that was not too was not too dark but had elements of darkness that was funny and we were looking through a whole range of different scripts and we came across Yantor and it just ticked all the boxes it was it's for us a big company of actors a big range of ages it's really funny but it's also very thought provoking very moving so it sort of seems to satisfy that what I would say is this is not the musical this is the original play that was written by the short story writer, the novelist, Isaac Bashevis Singer. It was later made into a musical, but this is the play. And, and because of that, it's darker, it's more thought-provoking, and it's, it's a really brilliant piece of theatre. But but you won't hear, Papa, can you hear me, unfortunately.
7: Did you have to look for a character who was sort of quite androgynous? Did you? Was that part of your sort of casting thought, or what was behind it?
6: I'm normally just looking for the best actors, The actor playing Yentl is brilliant, works in marketing, she's called Claire Gabber, and she is not very androgynous, she's she's very female. But I think the idea of of the role is about someone who isn't androgynous necessarily, it's someone who who is female, but needs to change her gender in order to be admitted to the idea of study. Because the character of Yentl is either told you can marry and look after the home, or you can do nothing, and she says, I want to study. So I think it's interesting to watch someone who is female be forced to compromise on that.
7: Do you think this is going to engender a, a debate within the Jewish community who have very strong opinions on women learning, women's roles? Do you think this is going to become a debate that should be had, and are you going to be able to do anything as a result of it?
6: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think what's fascinating about this play is It was written 50 years ago and is so relevant. The the conversations about gender normativity, gender identity, gender fluidity are so ongoing at the moment and to read this play and just to see that in the Jewish faith those Issues were coming up enough for Isaac Bysheva Singer to engage with them then. So I think it probably will lead to conversation. and I think it should because I think people should be allowed to live the lives that they want to. But of course, that occasionally reaches some friction when it comes to the kind of the structures of religion. So it's fascinating, I think.
7: And was it hard for you to put this on? Has, it, has this been quite a challenge? I think
6: the major challenge is everyone has a day job. So we're meeting majority of the time meeting once a week on a Sunday and over quite a long period of time. So we're meeting on one night a week for about eight months.
7: Are all the Spielers volunteers? Yes.
6: So everyone's a volunteer. Because of the fact that it's this kind of quite slow burn over a long period of time, we'll sometimes get back to a scene that you rehearsed two months ago and everyone would have forgotten it so it's a case of kind of repetition and kind of gradually drawing together and but now we're a month before rehearsals are more regular more than once a week and people are finally getting down and learning their lines
7: do you think it'll be a family production well, could kids come i think
6: probably it's suitable for 12 plus not because there's there's anything too scandalous there but because it, it's quite thoughtful And, yeah, I think some of the themes involved would be more interesting for people who are interested in thinking at the theatre. So, yeah, I'd say probably 12+. plus.
7: So that our listeners... Do you think it would be helpful for listeners to have read the Bashevis Singer short story before they come, just to see how that's played out and how you've interpreted it?
6: Yeah, I think that would probably be really interesting I mean there's no prior knowledge needed so if you want to come and just have a good night out and I think it will be a good night out it'll make you think it'll make you laugh it'll make you cry which is the three things I'm always imagining a piece of theatre should do but there's definitely a lot that the audiences can engage with there's the story if you did want to watch the film that's there too because it's a kind of interesting as an experiment to see how different a play is to a musical in kind of the way it's constructed and yeah are lots of articles and interesting things about it as a piece of American culture and piece of American writing and also a piece of Jewish culture. So yeah, lots to engage with.
7: And where will it be on? Um, Tell me a bit about how we get tickets.
6: So it's in the main hall at the JW3 Centre on Finchley Road. It is on for four performances from the 26th of November to the 29th of November. So that's a Sunday to the Thursday. There's a Sunday matinee which i think is nearly sold out so if you want to come in the afternoon book soon and then the rest of the performances are evenings monday to wednesday evenings you can book on the jw3 website or give them a a call and book through them it's in their main hall so it's about
0: a a 200 seat theater adam lenson director of yentl the play on at jw3 on the 26th of november and if you would like more information then do go to our website jewishviews.co.uk you are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come is our Jewish Schmooze. Don't forget that we live stream The Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. And it means that you can watch the discussion unfold and comment along as the discussion does indeed unfold. If you would like to do so, then all you have to do is go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. And we will try and read out those comments as and when we get them. And it's one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. We'd also love you to email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or, of course, you can always contact us via Twitter as well, which is simply at jewishviewsuk. Now, Hammerson House has long been associated with care in the community, in particular with the older members of our community, but they are just about to undertake a £36 million redevelopment of said site. And as a result of it, our community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Director of Fundraising and External Relations at Nightingale Hammerson, Susan Cohen, to find out more. Diana started by asking Susan to tell us a little bit more about Hammerson House.
9: Oh, Hammerson House had over a 50-year-old history, really meeting residents' demands and was an amazing facility. You know, people come into care older their needs have changed when Hammerson House opened all those years ago it was relatively healthy retirees looking to downsize and they drove right up to their door and (laughs) uh, it really was the case that you know there were several corridors that wheelchairs couldn't fit down and if someone needed to be hoisted not enough room in the rooms Um, not every room was en suite it just needed to be Redeveloped, and there's always an option of doing these things piecemeal. But it was really felt that to create the home that we really want to, where every last detail is evidence based on what offers the best practice, best quality care for older people, it was decided to start from from scratch. scratch. What's really amazing about the site and anyone who knows Hampstead Garden suburb will know this, is it's there's a lot of natural woodland and there are such therapeutic benefits, known evidence-based benefits to sort of having the natural light in the natural setting and that's dictating what the home is going to look like and so that every single one of those 116 room benefits from that setting and uh, all that it can
1: offer these lovely en suite, new en suite bedrooms, are going to be located within six distinct households. Can you just expand on that a little? What do you mean by household?
9: Yes, so there'll be residential communities where each individual will have their own room and own space, but what will be called pavilions and communal areas where people can congregate and have visitors and... Do activities together and feel like a proper residence, which is exactly what it is. And the households will be based on level of care. So we offer the full range of residential care, and that's from what they call residential (laughs) care, then nursing, dementia, dementia and nursing, right through to palliative care.
1: Now, the project has literally just begun, the anticipated redevelopment, hasn't it, of Hammersen in Amsterdam suburb. How how long do you expect it? I know these things can, can sometimes exceed all expectations, but how long do you expect it to take before you're up and running and you can get your residents back in again?
9: So far, we're to schedule, but it's early days. We expect to be up and running in 2020.
0: Susan Cohen, Director of Fundraising and External Relations at Nightingale Hammerson, talking to Community Editor Diana Toman there about their £34 million redevelopment of Hammerson House.
10: You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg, Phil, Dave and me today is the trustee of Max's Foundation, Louise Roby, and the subject for this edition is based on the only topic everyone is talking about, the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. The question is, quite simply, what does the State of Israel mean to us? Louise, let's start with you. It's largely thanks to the Balfour Declaration that we are even having this discussion, so what does the state of Israel mean to you?
8: I think its intentions and everything about what it was set up to do was absolutely right for its time. I think as I am um, quite a big visitor there, as it happens, because all my family, uh, quite a lot of my family live there and have an interestingly married in and out <laughs> living there, which I think is an interesting. So I have a, an Arab sister-in-law and an Iraqi Jewish sister-in-law. And the kids have been brought up actually all as Jews. But again, that's that's been quite an interesting journey. I think it's what I observe going there is the difference actually in such a small country, the differences that I see even in the in the different parts mm. when I go there, where I see some fantastic, fantastic lives and the way people live together there. And there are others where it just feels so sad that they can't, that they're not living well.
11: Every Arab that I've spoken to that lives in Israel wouldn't live anywhere else Mm -hmm. because they have jobs, they go to university, they come out qualified. Not all go to university, of course, but it's like the rest of the world. You can be anything you want to be in Israel without fear of discrimination, without fear of abuse. So it's the the people on the outside. It's, It's what is known as the Palestinians and the Arab states around them that are causing the problems, not not within Israel itself. Although well, of You're course, right it's with...
0: important, though, not to look at somewhere like Israel with rose-tinted glasses. I mean, there is, of course, going to be a natural affiliation that we have as a community towards our, as it were, homeland. However, no state is without its faults, and I don't think we should be so short-sighted as to not recognise that there is good and bad in everyone and everything. But getting back to the original question of what does Israel mean to us? I think if I was to answer that, first of all, I think I should confess that actually it took me to 2010 to even go to Israel. So that was when I was 24, I think it was, if my terrible maths serves me right. When I was 24 years old was the first time I actually went to Israel. And everyone around me in my circle of friends and a lot of my family as well had all been there and they were all raving about it. And of course, what I was exposed to was just what we know here from the British press. And I certainly don't want to start going down that route, especially as I Mm. work for it. But the point (laughs) being is that It took until I actually got there myself to judge it for myself. And that's what disappoints me, Mm. is that I feel that it's very easy for people to sit and judge anything. It's not necessarily just Israel, but it's very easy to sit on one's high horse and pass judgment. But until you actually go and experience something for yourself, I don't believe that that's the right attitude to take with most things in life.
8: And I'll tell you, there's one thing that struck me, because I've been to Jerusalem a few times, particularly in, in Israel. And the thing where I st- where I stand in the Arab markets, or the Jewish markets, or by the Wailing Wall, or wherever it is within Jerusalem, is actually you look at all of these religions and faiths standing together, living together praying separately but together. And actually, there, they all go along. They're all running yep. in and out of each yep. other's lives. They're running. In
11: and out of each other's restaurants uh, and absolutely. shops and everything I, I, else. You're absolutely
10: yes. right about that. Israel, Jerusalem is, without doubt, amazing. the most amazing city in the world. Mm. Amazing.
11: And whether you go to East Jerusalem or... West Jerusalem. It's the same. It's the same. I've been. I, I photographed in East Jerusalem, and it's exactly the same. And I've never had a problem with anybody I've ever met in East Jerusalem. Look, we know wherever you go in the world, there are is the idiot factor, and you're going to get that in any part of Israel, whether it's on the Jewish side or the non-Jews mm-hmm. in Israel. But you don't see it when you're there. I don't I, see it when I'm there.
10: I must say, there's something you've reminded me of. Suddenly, I'm old enough to remember. I was a little boy in Africa, in what was then called Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. And I remember with a friend sitting in a car, I remember it as though it were yesterday, sitting in a car and listening to a news reader on the local radio station saying that France has recognized the new state of Israel. England has recognized, and so Mm -hmm. on and so (laughs) on. And it got more and more and more exciting. And we were really excited about this. And we couldn't go to Israel. Well, it was many years before I did go to Israel. Mm -hmm. And it was just as exciting as it was that first day when Israel actually began.
11: I I find what uh, what, uh, Phil said earlier, when the first time I went to Israel, I had the same feelings. And I'm going back probably 40 years ago when I went. And I had exactly the same feelings that you had. I'd heard and and I I was worried and concerned because of all the problems that had been going on. When you got there, it was nothing. You know, yeah. it, it was a, a diverse country. And I think, it, you know, it's a great place to be. Would I want to live there? No.
8: Yeah, That's I feel the same. I, I have no desire to live there. But what I see through my nieces and nephews especially is a, a really young, vibrant hmm. place to grow up in relatively safe actually. Yep. Uh, and and out you know, they're out late, they're walking the streets, they're on the beaches. Well I have a daughter you who know, lives so-
11: there, four grandchildren, and the and the eldest one of the grandchildren is twelve, be bomitsford next year. And you know, he walks himself to school without any fear of anything. What
0: city do they live in?
11: They live in Modien which is a new city between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem.
0: See, I can hand on heart say and I I genuinely mean this that when I'm actually in Israel, I think I feel safer there than I do, do here because there is it's part of the fabric of their being over there to have security always patrolling the streets. Mm-hmm. Obviously, members of the IDF are normally compulsory citizens who have to go into the IDF to serve their country, I'm not actually sure what the minimum term is. Someone might correct me if it's two or three years. I think minimum service you have to serve in the two IDF. Two as a
8: female, I think. But, okay, but I, longer as a male.
0: Oh right. Okay, no, I didn't know the exact mm. numbers, but whatever it is, the fact. Sorry, that it, it's three
8: it, as a female. My my niece has just come out of it. Three. <laughs> it's
0: three. Well, you know more than I do. So there you go. But whatever the compulsory length is, because of it, they have enough members of the IDF to be patrolling the streets of Tel Aviv, mm, of even, Jerusalem. But even
11: when they're off duty, they, they have to carry their, yes, their they're still guns. In,
8: yes, absolutely. Yes. So
0: the point being is that th- that is enough to make, I think, both visitors and citizens feel that little bit safer. And let's, hmm. of course, not forget the incredible system that is the Iron Dome. Of course, whenever there is any air threat to Israel, that marvellous invention actually does protect citizens day in, day out, to the point of unknown quantities, Hmm. frankly, because it's just so automatic now that they protect themselves against any rocket attacks, that it almost doesn't make news when rockets are fired at Israel because they just automatically disarm them. This has actually just reminded me that I have hopefully got a very good friend of mine's wedding in Israel next year. And there's a whole group of us that have been asked to go over to the wedding. And most of us are going, but there are one or two who have decided that they are not going to go because they are scared about their safety over there. And they're not Jewish themselves. But I I feel that in some horrible way that might make it worse is because they're not given any inside knowledge. They don't know Mm -hmm. about Israel Mm -hmm. because they only see the bad things.
8: Well, I'll make you laugh, right? Because my niece (coughs) was in the army up until a few weeks ago. I can't say exactly what she was doing but she was incredibly she was in an incredibly stressful part of the army And she was more frightened to come and see me over here and go on the tube than she was to be in Israel. And and, and she actually refused to go on the tube without one of without me or her father or because she was more scared of being blown up by somebody here. And we we sort of laughed about it over dinner because I was saying, my God, given what you do in the army, you know, how can you come to London and be scared to go on the underground? So. Just to give it from another perspective, mm. you know, she doesn't, to your point, she feels extremely safe in Israel. She's walking about exactly. with a gun on her back at the age of yeah. 19, 20. Yeah. But yeah, comes over here, feels very different. Yeah. There's
10: yeah. another aspect of this, of course. I remember when this all started, when Israel started, it was people were saying, it was just after the Second World War, people were saying, at last the Jews have got somewhere where they can go, wherever they live, so that Nazism will never happen again. Mm. And even, and England was always known as being a very tolerant country, but even if you get kicked out of England, there will be somewhere to go. go. And I think this still remains. And I think what is so Mm -hmm. interesting is that the Israelis themselves
0: are willing to accept anyone. Well, we've actually got a comment here on Facebook from Ben who says... Many Jews in America see Israel as a possible place to go if they can no longer live there. Many Holocaust survivors and their children, no matter where they live, still feel like they need a place to escape if it gets too bad to live where they are and there is an increased immigration to Israel as anti-Semitism is on the rise. Mm. We saw that in so,
8: France. I mean, yeah, we, saw, we saw that a few years ago and, and when I went to Israel, suddenly everyone around me it was speaking French. French. Just yes. It became... Real parts of Tel Aviv, in particular, for mm. me, Ben Hertzaleh, I think, and became very, is very French. French. Yes, yeah, that's right. so I think that's absolutely. I right. must say, I it,
11: on the on the on the good side of all those French going to Israel, the shops have improved because of the French. They have become much smarter.
8: Right. The, uh, certainly, the in Netanya, the
11: col- the French culture has, has <laughs> yes, taken well, over. Yes, it will do, won't yeah. it? Yeah, it, it's made it. Do you know
10: the only sad thing? I don't. I'm not sure. If it, I mean it when I say use the word sad. I'm not sure whether it's right. But the only thing that makes me sad, put it that way, about Israel is that perhaps it's the same all over the world. But as it is a Jewish state, the religion hardly comes yes. anymore. Yes. Yes.
11: Yeah, I know exactly where I you're I from. I
10: know that in parts of, of Jerusalem and in parts of Tel Aviv indeed, there are many yeah. ultra religious people. But the majority of people I remember it, when I went for the for a radio station to Israel to do a programme about Israel, I was met lots of very interesting people. And one man said to me, I'm going to take you for supper. I know a wonderful supper where we can have lobster. And I said to him, I'm very sorry, I'm a Jew, I don't eat lobster. And he was very disappointed.
11: I was going to say that about Tel Aviv. It's slightly different now. There are more actual kosher restaurants in Tel Aviv than there used to be. But at one time, you could only find two or three... Kosher restaurants in Tel Aviv.
8: I, I actually think that was one of my I, I did kibbutz when I was twenty one and I was in the West Bank and then up in the Galilee and the Ganya Bet, which was a fantastic kibbutz. But I think that's what really surprised me, because I had expected to go to Israel and actually sort of have the whole religious element yes, put on me yes. and, and, and the food and and actually I didn't. I found that really surprising. I do get a little
11: bit sad think? that you can't get a decent kosher meal in Tel Aviv. You couldn't, You go to places, it is lobster and shellfish and everything else. But the, the problem I have with it is you've got all the Israelis in there eating it instead of saying, well, we don't have to. You know.
0: But don't you think that you could always argue that that is actually the case for religion Across the world, religion is not as important to people as it once was. Mm. And therefore, maybe Israel is just following suit. So it might be a Jewish state, but it doesn't necessarily mean to say that they have to uphold traditions of the religion that, say, two or three generations ago was the norm across the world.
11: No, I'm a regular shoregoer. But I said if I actually had to go and live in Israel, I'd probably be more, not not such a shoregoer, you know, I'm not. More I'm relaxed. not from. More relaxed about it. I probably sit yeah, on the yeah. beach on the Shabbos. You know. Yeah. I go to shore because I like the community aspect of it all. Well, is that but, because
8: you think you'd be more in the community there? As a, because, whole, as a whole. Yes. Because there is something about going there. Would, My daughter says it when she goes there that she. She just feels like suddenly she's part of something that here, perhaps, unless you're in your networks, if you're going exactly. to be in a synagogue exactly. or in a Jewish school or yeah. That's exactly um, in a youth how I feel. club. Although
11: we know people that have gone that, that still do the whole religious thing continually.
8: Yeah, I mean, some I, people take it to I the I other extreme. I have a
10: cousin who's lived there for many years. And when I went there and went to stay with them, they said, I said, I'd like to go to a synagogue on Saturday. And they said, why?
12: Mm.
11: and I explained
10: <laughs> why and yeah. said, oh for God's sake we don't do that we yeah. go to which the beach which quite a funny thing to say yeah. for yeah. God's yeah. sake I mean, after <laughs> saying that I mean I was
11: I was there once for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and I was in Jerusalem for Yom Kippur and we wandered, you know. Did we do much? But I went down to the wall for a little bit, but it was too hot, so we just had to wander about and came back to the hotel and cooled down. We didn't do anything else. And on Rosh Hashanah, you know, I did go to shawl in the morning, but I sat on the beach in the afternoon. Yeah, you know.
0: Do you know one thing that I find absolutely extraordinary is that in amongst everything that has been said about Israel, as we haven't even touched upon the remarkable and, quite frankly, off-the-scale impact that it has had on the likes of technology, on medicine, Uh, across the world. Do you know something? I think that's a whole
11: big discussion, a separate discussion.
10: And I think we'll have to do another time because our time is up, but that's absolutely right. Thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to our guest, trustee of Max's Foundation, Louise Roby. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And now it's time for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK.
12: We find ourselves celebrating a 100 years since the Balfour Declaration was established in 1917. And of course this week we celebrate that, but at the same time we are acutely aware of what has happened in New York this week, the senseless murder of eight people killed by a radical Islamist who unfortunately venerate death. A whole idea of the state of Israel is a nation that venerates life. As Golda Meir said famously, the day that our enemies love their children more than they hate ours, there will be peace. And this weekend, we lay we read from the portion of Aera, when Avraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his child. And of course we know it was a test, because God tells Avraham, don't touch the child, because we are a religion of life affirmation. Judaism wants to see a world of peace, a world of harmony, but also in the 70 years of the state's existence and the 100 years since the Balfour, we are acutely aware there are many out there who want to destroy, who want to hate, who want to vilify, who want to basically make a state of death where there should be a state of life. Balfour reminds us what goodness can come from the creation of a state that is there for the Jewish people but has given so much to the world. And we see what happens when unfortunately the enemies, not only of the Jewish people but of the entire Western world, get what they want, which unfortunately is terror terror. Death and destruction. I thank God daily that the Torah teaches us choose life, because that is what I believe the Balfour Declaration did and the State of Israel does every day.
0: Just listening to Rabbi Andrew Shaw there makes me think the number of years that I've been working in Jewish radio, and believe me, it's been a fair few. I think that so often the conversation of achieving peace in the Middle East has come up time and time again. And regardless of what political side of the fence you sit on, I think the one thing that most people can be in agreement on is that we do all want a peaceful solution. Now, whether or not that we will share our vision of what that is or not is neither here nor there for the moment. But it would be wonderful to think that something like the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, 100 years after Arthur Balfour's vision, that we might be in the near future one step nearer to ultimately achieving that. Thank you very much. All the same, though, to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with a very thought provoking thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guests, Simon Johnson, the Chief Executive of the Jewish Leadership Council, telling us about the work of the Balfour 100 Committee, as well as the importance of the Balfour Declaration. To Adam Lenson, Director of Yentel, the play on at JW3 on the 26th of November. To Susan Cohen, Director of Fundraising and External Relations at Nightingale Hammerson, telling us about the $36 million pound redevelopment of hammerson house thanks also to our other contributors to our producers tony honekberg sue greenberg and harley baptiste and, of course, to you at home for listening. Now, speaking of you at home for listening, if you've ever sat there and you've thought, I would really like to take part in one of the Schmooze discussions, well, now might be your chance. We are always on the lookout for more people to join us on the Schmooze, and if you think you've got what it takes, then why not drop us an email, studio at jewishviews.co.uk, and tell us why you think that you'd be up for one of our discussions. And who knows, maybe by this time next week, or maybe not next week, you could take part in the schmooze as well. Don't forget that you can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.